A Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Hello, and welcome to Episode 9 of A Light to the Nations. I'm your host, Father Fred Shaheen. Matthew chapter 13 recounts Jesus' rejection in Nazareth, his hometown. Verse 58 concludes this section, and it says, He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. This might sound puzzling at first. A person hearing this with non-scriptural ears, like me for much of my life, will assume that since unbelief is the problem, then doing a mighty work is the solution. Our reaction to verse 58 might be to ask, if they don't believe, why doesn't Jesus just do something miraculous so they will believe? We think this because we want Jesus to succeed the way we think he should. We want people to be wowed, amazed, dazzled at his power so much that they will become convinced and become followers. We root for Jesus in this way because we ourselves like to be wowed, amazed, and dazzled. We want Jesus to act like a magician. To illustrate this, Think of how we commonly refer to one particular story in the Bible as the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, or the miracle of the loaves and fishes. This story appears in all four of the Gospels. In it, Jesus' disciples feed a crowd of 5,000 with a small number of bread and fish. When we hear what the text is actually saying, without a preconceived expectation, there isn't anything that warrants it being called miraculous. Let's try to hear the text of Matthew 14, verses 14 through 21, without any bias. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about five thousand men, 
besides women and children. In the narrative, we hear that Jesus instructs his disciples to feed the large crowd with the food they already have, five loaves of bread and two fish. After they follow his instructions, it says simply that they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. There's nothing here about multiplication. In fact, the point of the story is that the crowd of 5,000 were satisfied with the same food that Jesus blessed, broke, and gave to his disciples to give to them. We like to call this multiplication because it satisfies our expectations. More bread, more fish. That's how everyone gets to eat. But the point of this story is the sufficiency of what the disciples, through Jesus' teaching, already had to offer. There was no need to magically or miraculously make more food. This understanding is even more apparent when we consider the symbolic value of the number five. Five loaves represents the books of the Pentateuch. In other words, the bread is the teaching. This is made explicit a little later in Matthew when Jesus warns his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and they misunderstand, thinking he is saying that because they forgot to bring bread. Let's hear verses 8 through 12 of Matthew chapter 18. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves, because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the five thousand and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves of the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up? How is it you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. On the other hand, the two fish here represent the two communities, Jew and Gentile, which made up the crowd. That in Matthew, the fish are meant to represent the people and not the food they eat is corroborated by the text itself. Notice it says, He blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. Although Jesus took the loaves and fish from the disciples, only the loaves are mentioned in the blessing and breaking and as being distributed for food. Significantly, we hear that after all of them ate, the number of baskets of fragments taken up was 12, symbolically representative of all Israel. Also of note, both Matthew and Mark include a second account of feeding the multitudes with seven loaves. In that story, the number is 4,000. If the feeding of 5,000 represents Israel, then the 4,000 represents the Gentiles, five indicating a scriptural totality, and four, its counterpart, that of the cosmos. So this is the story of the disciples feeding the multitudes with a teaching. It's not a multiplication of food and not even a miracle. Too often, we add special effects when none are there, simply because we have difficulty receiving the teaching straight without the fireworks. We are dazzled by spectacle and often look for it, even when it's not in the story. But in the Gospels, Jesus is not a magician. The wow and dazzle we seek, particularly when we are in need, 
can easily be the work of a charlatan, so it is never in and of itself the basis for belief. The fact that the text in Matthew 13, which we heard earlier, goes out of its way to make a connection between unbelief and not many mighty works indicates that we need to pay attention and hear why that connection is made. Jesus' mighty works are not a sideshow attraction meant to convert followers. They are, rather, signs that confirm that he is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, as promised in the prophetic books of Scripture. As often is the case, the prerequisite for receiving the sign is that one already believes. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Jesus asks the two blind men in the ninth chapter of Matthew, and they respond, Yes, Lord, before Jesus touches their eyes and opens them. We hear this mechanism of belief followed by confirmation through mighty works or miracles throughout all four Gospels. John uses the term signs to refer to Jesus' mighty works. Mark's Gospel makes the connection between the prophetic word of God and Jesus' public ministry the most clear from the outset. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, the text says, and then references Isaiah and Malachi to speak of John, the forerunner of the Christ. In Mark, to accept Jesus as the Christ means to understand him as the fulfillment of Isaiah and the other prophets via their words about him. This important relationship between prophecy and its fulfillment in the Gospels is forcefully depicted by Matthew a little bit earlier in an exchange between Jesus and the disciples of John. Let's hear from chapter 11, verses 2 through 6. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus' response to the inquiry, Are you the coming one? is simple, straightforward, and relentless. There's no insider knowledge passed between the Messiah and the messengers of his forerunner. We almost expect Jesus here to give John a bit of extra reassurance, like a winking, Yes, John, it is really me. You can go to your death in peace. Yet remarkably, even John must receive Jesus in the same manner everyone else must, based on what they have heard and seen. And, as with the people in Nazareth, Jesus' home, there's always the possibility, even having heard and seen, of being offended and thus not believing. In Scripture, dazzle and spectacle are not a sure sign of God's will. See how in Exodus, for example, when Pharaoh demands signs and wonders from Moses and Aaron, he responds to them by calling his wise men to replicate the same wonders by means of sorcery. And when a sign is not offered but rather demanded, as it is by the Pharisees and Sadducees twice in the Gospel of Matthew, 
Jesus' response is that an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and that no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Matthew 12, 39 and 16, 4. The sign of Jonah to which Jesus refers is none other than the prophetic word of Scripture, which was preached reluctantly by Jonah and heeded by the repentant Ninevites. Perhaps most convincing is the example of the apostle to the nations, Paul, whose first encounter with Jesus was through a vision. Paul writes in an oblique manner about the experience of a mystical vision in 2 Corinthians, but significantly he never preaches from it. Rather, in all his letters, he preaches Jesus Christ exclusively from the scriptures, katatasgraphas. In scripture, scandal, scandalon, is a hindrance. It's a barrier to belief, which in turn keeps us from receiving the grace of salvation. In the cultural climate of 2022, taking offense at something, anything, and speaking against it seems to be the preferred way to portray yourself as an innocent victim while casting the other person as the enemy. It's not hard to see why, in such a milieu, we demand the spark of fireworks and the dazzle of a spectacle before we put our trust in something. But don't be fooled. Real instruction that is life-giving, that which only the God who made the heavens and earth can provide for us, comes by way of boring, repetitive words inscribed in a scroll and uttered to us by the ones to whom they have been given. It is to them that that same Elohim, the scriptural God who is enthroned in the heavens, has instructed in this way. You shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. No, it isn't magic. On the contrary, the scriptural bread of instruction has real power, not flash and dazzle. It has the power, as we hear in the last book of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy, to bestow both blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience on all who submit to it. This concludes Episode 9 of A Light to the Nations. Until we meet again, thank you for listening. 